Hi, this is Chris Montez, recording of Let's Dance Some More, See You, Call Me. And you're listening to Robert Miller on Follow Your Dream. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Tommy Rowe, one of the biggest stars of the 1960s. He had 27 top 100 records, including six top 10 hits. He hit number one with Sheila and Dizzy, and then he had Sweet Pea, Hooray for Hazel, and Jam Up and Jelly Type. I remember them all. What a string. He also appeared in TV shows like Green Acres, and he's got a new album now called From Here to Here, a collection of 10 songs from his catalog, including a cover of If I Were a Carpenter. And as I do with all my musician guests, Tommy and I in the middle of this thing are going to do what I call a song fest. We're going to play a bunch of his hits and we're going to talk about them. You'll get the backstories and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that in every episode, I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make it relevant somehow. And in this instance, I've chosen the song called Hey Jake from the album East Side Sessions by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this song? Well, Tommy is a 60s guy and Hey Jake is a 60s song. So I thought that it worked. So Tommy Rowe, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Oh, thanks, Robert. What an introduction. Great to have you here. All right. I got to start out and ask about this. I had Chris Montez on the show a while ago, and he told a story about a 1963 tour that you and he were on in the UK, and you had this little band from Liverpool at the bottom of the bill. Is that right? Yeah, a little cover band called the Beatles. <laughs> now tell me about that experience. Oh, that was that was a great experience and fantastic memories. You know, Chris and I, earlier in 62, Chris and I did a tour with Sam Cooke together. So that's how we knew each other. And so our we got along so great, our agent decided to book us in England. So he booked a tour for us in England, and Chris and I were the headliners of the tour. And a featured act on the tour was a group called the Beatles, which nobody had ever heard of in 1963. And so uh, we did a 30-day tour, and uh, the tour went fantastic. It was really, I considered our tour as the launching pad for the Beatles because during that tour is when they really took off and their fan base just uh, developed like crazy in England, you know. And, and that's when they did the movie right after the tour, Hard Day's Night, they did the movie. And that movie was exactly the way our tour was. I mean, it was just chaotic from beginning to end and you know the fans were chasing us down the street after the show and it was just an amazing adventure and uh, uh, great memories for chris and i both you had the screaming girl thing going on then 
Oh yeah, we all had our fans. I mean, the Beatles, of course, were were huge. They were getting really big on this tour, and their fans were kind of following them around to the different venues, you know. But uh, if you left the theater early, you'd be okay. But if you waited till the show was over, I mean, you couldn't get through the crowd out at, by the stage door. It was just chaos, you know. Must have been amazing. Chris told me that by the end of the tour, they went from the bottom of the bill to the top of the bill. Is that right? Well, they did. You, you know, the, like I said, their fans were just, uh, after their show, their fans wouldn't be quiet. So, I mean, you couldn't do anything after they finished their part. So we decided to flip the order around and make it to where they could close most of the shows. I think Chris closed a few of the shows. and I might have closed one or two of them, but you know, it, it worked out perfect because the, the tour was hugely successful and a springboard for the Beatles. And then, and then it launched Chris and I in England. I mean, I, I moved to England after that tour and, and just because I had so many dates over there in, in Europe and England. So it worked for everybody. Did you have any idea that they were going to become the kind of hit that they became? I knew they were going to be huge, but I didn't, I would have never dreamed they would become, you know, so huge. But I, you know, when I left, uh, I, I had developed a relationship with uh, Brian Epstein. He wanted to manage me in Europe. And he was talking to my manager about uh, making a deal to do that, you know. So uh, when the tour was over, Brian gave me a little promo pack and asked me if I would see if my label would be interested in signing the Beatles. And so it was a little, all, all it was was a NEMS record store bag with, with their album in it and, you know, a, a bio and a, a couple of singles. And so when I left and came back to America, I, I took the Queen Elizabeth, the ship, back from England to New York. And uh, I had already hyped my producer, Felton Jarvis, on the, on, the, on the Beatles. And I told him, you know, it was like Elvis Presley all over again. I was really hyping them crazy. And so when I landed in New York, uh, uh, Felton met me at the docks. And uh, we went directly to Sam Clark's office, at ABC Paramount Records in, on Broadway. And uh, I didn't even check in the hotel. I had my bags with me and everything. We walk in the office and Felton was really excited, you know. So we go in and they congratulate me on the tour and say the tour was successful. You know, they were telling me how great the, the PR was on the tour and everything. And um, Sam said, Felton tells me you found an act you would like to um, present to us. Maybe we'd be interested in signing them, signing them up to uh, ABC Records. And I said, yeah, they're called the Beatles and they were on our tour. And he said, well, let me see what you have there. So I took the album out and gave it to Sam. He put it on the turntable and dropped the needle on the first cut. I think it was uh, Love Me Do or Please Please Me, one of, the, one of those. Right. And uh, played a few bars. I mean, he picked the, the needle up and said, I tell you what, kid, it's got to be the worst piece of crap I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> let us let us be the talent scouts. Just go over. We have you in a nice room over at the Waldorf. Go over there and write us some more hits. <laughs> we'll find the talent for our label. Oh, man. And, you know, oh, Felton man. was just, we were, you know, the air was just let out of our balloon. We, I, I just knew they were going to love them. But of course, you know, really, at that time, you had to see the Beatles. If you just heard their music compared to what was happening in the States, it didn't make sense. I mean, it didn't work, you know, but when, once you saw them and you heard their music with the image of the Beatles, then that was the deal. I mean, <laughs> you know, 
The only thing you can say in defense of that guy is that there were 17 record labels that passed on the Beatles. I know that, yeah. And actually, VJ Records released a couple of singles on the Beatles. That's right. And they did nothing. But again, you didn't see them. You had to see them. All right. I hope you saved that little package that you got from Brian Epstein. Oh, I wish I had. I didn't. I didn't save anything. I didn't get their autographs or anything. You know, I was a, I was not an autograph guy. I tell you, if you had saved that little package and put it up on eBay, you'd get oh. a couple of million dollars for that. Tell now. me about it. Listen, <laughs> I, you know, John Lennon's Gibson guitar just sold at auction for, I think it was like two point five million dollars. And on that guitar on the tour is where I started writing everybody. He used to let me borrow his Gibson guitar to write songs. And I was writing, he was writing, him and Paul were writing. But occasionally I would say, John, could I borrow your guitar? I got a, an idea for a song and he'd let me use that guitar. And I started writing everybody on that tour with John's guitar. So, you know, the guitar's got to be worth at least three and a half million now since they know I wrote everybody <laughs> on it. She got another hit on there. Yeah, another hit. <laughs> Good for you. Hi, everybody. This is your host, Robert Miller. I'm pleased to tell you that I've got a new album called Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. It features 10 new songs, plus guest appearances by John Helliwell of Supertramp, Tony Carey of Rainbow, and international sitar sensation Deobrat Mishra. The album has a definite 60s vibe, and the theme of the record is all about relationships and love. It may just be my best album ever. The reviewers agree. Indie Shark calls it Album of the Year. Big Celebrity Buzz says it's one of the great rock sets of the year. And Pop Icon calls it an adventure that keeps us on the edge of our seats. How about that? And for me, the icing on the cake is the praise that the album has received from world-class musicians like Steve Hackett of Genesis, Gary Puckett of The Union Gap, Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul and Mary, Jim McCarty of The Yardbirds, and David Liebert of The Happenings. I'm going to release the 10 songs on the album in a novel way in five special episodes of this podcast featuring two songs in each one. So be on the lookout for these special episodes of Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to this podcast and please sign up for our weekly emails previewing each episode and much more. The links are all in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. When you let yourself go all right, let's turn to your career. Okay, you had this massive hit with Sheila. Sweet little Sheila, you'll know her if you see her. Blue eyes and a ponytail. Cheeks are rosy, she looks a little nosy. Man, this little girl is fine. Never knew a girl like a little Sheila. Her name drives me insane. 
Tell us a little bit about that whole situation. Well, Sheila, when I was about 13 or 14 years old, I used to write these little poems. And my dad was a musician. He played guitar. And uh, so I asked him one day if he'd teach me some chords on the guitar. And I was thinking maybe I could put some music to my little poems, you know. And so he taught me three chords. And I had this poem called Frida, Sweet Little Frida. And I'd written it for a little girl I went to school with. We kind of chased each other around the playground. And uh, I was going to present her with the poem one day, you know. And so I took that that poem and I I wrote, not Sheila, I wrote Frida, Sweet Little Frida, with the three chords that, that my dad had taught me on the guitar. Well, Frida turned into Sheila eventually. And what happened is I, I put a band together later on. And I guess Frida was probably the first or second song I ever wrote. And so I put a band together and we started playing around Atlanta at record stores or wherever, wherever they'd let us play, you know, we'd play. And um, this record producer came up to us one day and said he'd like to make some records with us. So I, we auditioned and I sang Frida for him. And he said, man, I love that song Frida, but I'm, the title doesn't register with me. So we got to change that title. So my aunt Sheila happened to be visiting us that weekend. <laughs> And I said, well, well, let's just call it Sheila. My Aunt Sheila's over at the house there. She'll she'll love that. So we changed it to Sheila. It's a good thing you didn't call it Aunt Sheila, okay? <laughs> yeah, we didn't call it Aunt Sheila. But we recorded it locally in Atlanta, and uh, it was released uh, on Judd Records, which was a label out of Memphis. It was Sam Phillips' brother, Judd Phillips. He, he started his own label, I guess, to compete with Sam, you know. But uh, he had a local label out of memphis and he released it and it did okay in the south you know but it was never a big hit and then um later on about a year or so after that i met felton jarvis at a sock hop one night paul drew was a dj in atlanta and he had it was on wgst a fifty thousand watt station and he used to do these sock hops every saturday and uh, so he hired our band to play at the sock hop and felton came over with paul and that's how I met Felton. And so Felton wanted to produce records and he asked me about producing. And I said, yeah, of course, but he didn't want to do the band. He just wanted to produce me. And so that was a problem. You know, we had to work that out. And so what happened is I got with Felton. He put me together with Bill Lowry in Atlanta and they booked a session up in Nashville through ABC Records. And we went up and cut, um, cut Sheila. And Sheila was the B-side of the record. I cut Save Your Kisses and Sheila. I got to stop you a second. I've heard this story before by several artists that what started out as the B-side of the single got flipped over and became the A-side, became the hit. And I'm wondering, was it a particular disc jockey that got you there or what happened? Yes, uh, DJ and Buddy Dean in uh, Baltimore. He had played the early version of Sheila and, and, you know, it didn't do anything on his station. So when he got the record, he saw, you know, they, the promoters were promoting Save Your Kisses and he saw that Sheila was the B-side. So he just flipped it and played Sheila because he was familiar with the song. And he, as we used to say in the old days, the phones lit up, you know, he said, he said he got more requests than for any record he played that night. So that's where the record broke. And, it was just a fluke, you know, and, and another thing about that session, 
it was a split, what we called a split session in those days. You know, they weren't so sure about me, so they had this other artist. So we we both recorded. This first artist, artist was named uh, Vince Everett. They used, he sounded just like Elvis Presley. And so they used Vince Everett for his name, which was was Elvis, his name in Love, Love Me Tender, the movie. The character's name was Vince Everett. So he cut one of Elvis's songs, Such a Night, and it took them like, two hours and 45 minutes to do his two sides. Well, I was left with 15 minutes to cut Sheila and Save Your Kisses. And we did Save Your Kisses first because it was the A side. And we did Sheila in one take. Oh, man, what a story. We just ran it ran it down with the band and, and cut it. And that was it. And I was very unhappy. I thought I was really shortchanged, you know? Yeah, you were at the time, but that sent you into orbit. I mean, at the end of the day, it was great, right? It was, it was just meant to be. I mean, it was like fate, you know? It's just incredible. All right, go on to the next one. Well, everybody was the follow-up to Sheila, and that did quite well for me. It got to number three in Billboard. One time or other, everybody listened to me. You lose somebody And then uh, I had a little lull there. I went in the army. I was in the army for almost a year and a half. And um, then when I got out of the army, I wrote Sweet Pea while I was in the army. And I was trying to think while I was there, what am, what am I going to record? Because the British invasion had started by then. And I knew that I had to compete with this fantastic music coming out of England. I knew I couldn't sound like them. I had to do something different. So I wrote Sweet Pea. I went And that was the beginning of my bubblegum trip, you know? So we cut Sweet Pea with Gary Paxton in Hollywood. And um, we released it. Sweet Pea was actually a demo that I cut for, uh, what was the group? Um, group out of, had Hang On Sloopy. The McCoys. The McCoys. I cut a demo to send to Burt Burns, who was their record guy in New York. And I'd met Bert and he asked me to send him songs. So I sent him Sweet Pea for the McCoys. Well, they didn't do it. They turned it down. And so we just released Sweet Pea, the demo, as the single. And it became a huge record. So that started my bubblegum thing. And then I had Hooray for Hazel after that.
had another lull, and then I got with Steve Barry out here in California and at ABC, ABC Dunhill, and uh, Steve wanted to pr produce me, and that's when I wrote uh, Dizzy with my my friend Freddie Weller, and so we recorded Dizzy, and it became just my biggest hit ever. Quite a string that you had there. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I was very fortunate. And I and I, I tell you, you know, I was always very fortunate to have a good producer, someone to oversee everything. I mean, I kind of helped produce my records myself, but you know, Felton was great because he was just full of energy and he inspired the musicians. And and I always surrounded myself with great musicians. You know, everybody was cutting muscle shows. Alabama. That was one of the first hits cut in Muscle Shoals. And that, you know, I had uh, David Briggs on keyboards and Norbert Putnam on bass, all the Muscle Shoal guys. And then in Nashville, I had uh, Bob Moore on bass and Buddy Harmon on drums. Floyd Kramer he was even playing on Sheila. You can't hear him, but he's playing on there somewhere. And um, then, of course, out here in Los Angeles, I had the Wrecking Crew, you know, Hal Blaine and all those guys play on all my hits. So I always had fantastic musicians, a lot of energy from the producer, and uh, all of my records were kind of energy oriented with, you know, simple lyrics, and th they were just fun songs, you know, fun things to do. Exactly right. They were fun songs, and they were kind of the antithesis, as you said, of what was happening in the whole British invasion side of things. You weren't competing directly against those guys. You had your own thing going on. And that's what I meant to do. I mean, I had to do that. I, if I came in there and did rockabilly or try to sound like a British act, it wouldn't work, you know. So um, it it worked very well for me. And I, I you know, I was considered, the, they call me the father of bubblegum. I guess you could say that because Sweet Pea was the first bubblegum hit. Uh, Hanky Panky was released before Sweet Pea, but it didn't do anything. And it was, it was released by um, Tommy James, I think it was. Uh -huh. And uh, it was released a few months before Sweet Pea, but it, it did nothing. And then Sweet Pea was released. And then, of course, Tommy James came after that with all of those great records that he made, you know. So it kind of set a trend for, for that, that genre. Well, it worked. That's what counts for you. And tell me about the Jam Up and Jelly type. That was a little bit different, I thought. Yeah, Jam Up and Jelly Type, people think that's kind of a risque song, but I didn't mean it. I didn't intend it to be that way. Jam Up and Jelly Type is the saying my father used to use. It's actually, it's kind of a Southern expression. Like we say, groovy or out of sight. Well, uh -huh. that was my dad's generation's groovy or out of sight. 
if something was groovy, it was jam up and jelly tight. And and that really came, jam up and jelly tight, what came from when they would do the, they would can the jams and the jellies. And the, the ladies would say, well, the jam's up and the jelly's tight. That meant it was all done. It was in, in the pantry, you know. And that's where that saying came from. But dad used to use it. He'd see a pretty girl walking down the street and he'd say, son, that girl's jam up and jelly tight. <laughs> So that's where I got that title. And then, of course, I wrote that with my writing partner, Freddie Weller. Freddie and I kind of grew up together in Atlanta. And he um, ended up joining Paul Revere and the Raiders as their guitarist. And he moved out to California about the same time I was here. And um, Paul asked me, you know, Paul lost his guitar player. He said, do you know anybody that uh, would like to audition to replace our guitarist? And I said, well, you should try to get Freddie. He was working with Billy Joe Royal at the time. And um, he, he, so Paul got in touch with him and Freddie flew out and auditioned and got the gig. And so when he started, when he joined the Raiders, we used to tour together on the Dick Clark tours and Paul and Paul, Paul would be an act, the Raiders, myself, they'd have several acts on the show and we'd travel by bus and Freddie and I started writing songs together on those bus tours. And Dizzy was the first song we wrote together. <laughs> so we wrote quite a few after that, quite a few country songs that Freddie ended up recording and did quite well. And then Jam Up and Jelly Tight, we wrote together as well. Good for you. Tell me a little bit about Dick Clark. What was he like to work with? Oh, he was a jewel. He was uh, such a sweet guy. And if he liked you, boy, he would do anything in the world to help you. And the first time I did Bandstand, he was still in Philadelphia. And that was with Sheila when Sheila was a hit. And I remember I drove up to Philadelphia from Atlanta and I had my friends with me in on the in the car I wanted some support you know I was I was really a greenhorn man I didn't know what the hell I was doing you know but I was learning as I went along and so um we did the show in in uh, Philadelphia and of course Sheila was a huge hit and then right after that shortly after that Dick moved to California and set up shop out here and he started a, a show called where the action is an afternoon show and I had moved to New York I was living in New York at the time and he got in touch with my manager and asked if if I would come out and do where the action is and he said we'll tape about six or eight shows then you can go back to New York you know so I flew out and we started taping the shows the idea of the show was we'd go on location all around Los Angeles you know, you know, LA is so beautiful. I mean, California is so beautiful. There's a lot of great places to shoot out here. And uh, we'd move around, shoot different locations. And uh, so we did about six or eight shows. And he said, well, we're all done, Tommy. He said, we really appreciate it. You, you can go back to New York. I, I never went back to New York. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I, I told my, I had a roommate back in New York. Uh, Connie Denavi was ha handling my PR back there. And uh, she had set me up with uh, her partner. I, I forgot his name. I think it's, I can't remember his name, but he, he wanted to have a, an apartment in New York. He lived outside of town. And so he said he'd share the apartment with me. So I called Dick Freeberg, I think was his name. So I called Dick and I said, Dick, I'm, I'm staying in California. You can just keep the furniture and everything. I'm not coming back. He was really upset because I was spending the rip with him, you know. But um, that's that's how I ended up in California in 1965. I, I came out and I just ended up staying there. There were two great shows that used to be on television. And I think they were both in the afternoon. Where the Action Is 
was one of them. And then the other one was Hullabaloo. Were you on that one as well? Oh, I did Hullabaloo quite a few times, yeah. They were like the two dueling shows, okay? Yeah. You know? But where the action is was like, um, I think it preceded Bandstead, either preceded or followed Bandstead, I can't remember. But it was an afternoon show, and the kids would watch both shows, Where the Action Is and Bandstand. And, um, boy, if you were on those shows, I mean, your records would just take off. That's right. It was a national show. If I remember correctly, Freddie Cannon wrote the theme song for Where the Action Is. Oh, baby, come on. Baby, where the is. He sure did. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. It's a great song, too. It was a great song. I think it became a hit on its own. It did. It was a hit by the Raiders. Oh, man. The Raiders were a great group also. Was this before or after they started to wear the whole Paul Revere and the Raiders kind of outfits? I think it was after. You know, uh, well, when I first joined the show, you know, the one thing about Paul, he was... He was like, he made you feel so comfortable, you know, and I was, I was nervous about doing TV. I'd never done anything like that, especially as a regular. And when I joined the show, boy, he really went out of his way to make me feel relaxed and comfortable. And he, he was a great guy and really a great entertainer. I mean, I don't know if you ever saw their show or not, but their show was just dynamite. It was just full of energy and fun and you know, a lot of jokes and Great music. I mean, they had everything, you know. They were a great group at the time, no question. All right, so tell me about the new album that you got either coming out or it's, or tell me, is it out already from here to here? What's what's this about? Yes, it's out, and I'm really excited. I haven't had a CD out, I guess, since the 90s. I can't remember the last CD I had out. And what happened is my friend down in Florida, Mike Franklin, I've worked, Mike used to be my band. He toured with me in Europe with his band. And he's a great musician and great arranger. And we had recorded some songs back in 2012. I think there's about four songs on there that we cut back then. And um, so I was talking to him last year and I, I said, you know, I'd love to do some more music with you. And he said, but why don't we do a CD? And I said, well, I have some new songs. And um, so I sent him my new songs that I'd written and he, he liked them and said, listen, let's go ahead and do, put a package together. So. You know, today recording is so different than it used to be. You know, he, I do all of my recording at home. He, he did the tracks in Florida and he would send me a demo of the track and I do my vocals in Atlanta or here in LA, wherever I happened to be at the time. And that's how we put the album together. And um, the idea is I'm taking you from here to here, from the bubblegum days to where I am today. I mean, you know, it's amazing. I think about it. I've been in this business 60 plus years and from 1960 till 2023. So that's what, 63 years or so. So the idea was to take you to where I am today from where I was in the bubblegum days. And uh, what I did is I went back and in my catalog, I, I took uh, some of my bubblegum cuts like Kick Me Charlie is the song that I cut on the Sweet Pea album in the mid 60s. And I told Mike, I've always wanted to re-record that with horns. So he did a horn arrangement on it, and we re-recorded it. 
and I just love it. It's a fun song. And so that's what I've done with this CD. I've kind of mixed some of the old catalog songs that I had with the new ones I have. And it kind of takes you through that, you know, through that uh, transition. Listen, good for you that you've been at it so long. I mean, there's not that many artists that can say that they've been doing it as long as you are. And like you said, those songs that you wrote and that you made famous, they were fun songs, okay? The radio back then was fun, okay? So many of the songs were fun. So I congratulate you on all of that. We have been speaking here with Tommy Rowe, the great Tommy Rowe. You had all that string of hits in the 1960s. Good for you. I want to thank you, Tommy, for being on this podcast. It was great fun to have you go through all of this with me. It's fun to be with you, Robert. Appreciate the invitation. You bet. All right, we're going to listen now to that song of mine that started off the episode. It's called Hey Jake, and I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.